This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, hello. Welcome to The Country Hour this afternoon. I'm Cassie Huff and... uh, from little things, big things grow. It seems Australia, South Australia is on track to reap a record-breaking crop. I'll have more on how things are looking, but I'd love to hear what sort of tonnages you might be reaping at the moment if you've had a chance to get onto your paddocks. Uh, the biggest I've heard of is eight tonnes. Eight tonnes, wow. In an area that would normally get that? No, no, not all. That's in the, the Coongal-Warrambu-type area, so... Um, that's certainly a record for everybody. Amazing. And hopefully that is being replicated right across the state. Maybe not eight tonnes. Not everyone's going to pull off eight tonnes per hectare of wheat. But if you are uh, really happy with what's coming in the back of your header at the moment, text me 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Also have a, a little on the uh, foot rot situation across South Australia as well, it seems there's been a bit of a rise in the amount seen due to this wet spring that we've been experiencing across South Australia. But we're into summer. Things are probably going to dry out. Looks like there's some sunny days ahead. So uh, hopefully, as I said, uh, you are on your paddocks and, uh, and text me 0467 922 891 or phone one and let me know what you are reaping because South Australia looks set to smash its crop record with the Department of Primary Industries estimating a whopping 12.1 million tonnes of grain, oil seeds and pulses will be harvested this year. That number breaks the 2016-17 record of 11.1 million tonnes and that is off similar areas planted as well, similar hectares planted as well. Grain Producers SA Chair Brad Perry says it shows just what timely rain can deliver. This is going to shape up as a, as a record year and I think the crop and pasture report figures uh, marry up quite well with, uh, with what we're hearing so far from early harvest. Um, from the crops that are coming off, uh, yeah, the yields are, are massive. So, um, yeah, the 12.1 million tonnes, I think about a million tonnes more than the previous record in South Australia. Um, you know, it's a massive achievement for our grain producers and, and while we have had some... Um, you know, some challenges along the way. Um, looking, really looking forward to uh, to getting getting it harvested in the silo and uh, and you know, really celebrating grain producers and and their economic contribution to the state. It's quite interesting to look at the numbers between this year and last year because a similar amount of area was sown. You're looking at, at about three point nine million hectares for. Uh, last year and uh, 3.9 million hectares or so this year. But the difference in the tonnages that are coming off are, are stark. There's, there's sort of a, a 4 million tonne difference there. You've got 8.4 million tonnes coming in last year, but 12 million tonnes coming in this year. It really shows just how much difference that spring rain has made. Oh, it, it definitely demonstrates the rainfall and, and just having that subsoil moisture profile it's making um the the crops just really prosper and and grow um and i think we'll see that as well particularly in in the wheat some there's some huge wheat crops out there and even if you look at the numbers in the crop and pasture report that uh, persa has put out we've actually sown less um hectares than we did in in 2020-21 but uh we've got about three million 
tons more out of production um, than 2021. So it, it's a phenomenal achievement, um, and I think we should be positive about the season because, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a record breaker. There have been some rain effects. There's been hail in some parts and lodging, and uh, there's also been a heavier disease and, and pest pressure this year. But how have growers managed that? Certainly. I think every year there's always these types of challenge. It's just been quite unique with so much um, consistent rainfall and also it's pushed back harvest. But we, we have seen some, um, some disease pressures. Um, and I, I think we'll see that um, continue to roll in with uh, with quality. But in saying that, uh, South Australian prices are, are holding really strong as well, uh, and the crops are quite large in, in yield. So I think while there will be, um, yeah, there certainly will be some, some downgrading, uh, overall it's looking really good. People don't want to get ahead of themselves before this crop is in the bin and there's still a lot of harvest to go in South Australia. But uh, you mentioned prices there. How are prices stacking up, especially now that the East Coast has really struggled with weather problems? Yeah, I think the prices have adjusted to, um, yeah, in South Australian grain producers' favour at this stage, looking um, continually very strong. Um, and, I mean, it's a bit of a wait and see as to what happens with uh, with West Australians' harvest, and they're going through a, a big harvest as well. So, uh, you know, a bit of a wait and see on, on what happens with their wheat, I think, and the, and the protein levels in their wheat. But I think grain producers here are going to enjoy strong prices. Um, I think there's always that um, thought that, you know, we should definitely wait until the wheat is in the in the silo, but, you know, it's good to remain positive as well. We're only early in harvest, so a couple of million tonnes in, but it, this weather's, um, this dry weather is really serving us well now. Which parts of South Australia are really driving these big tonnages? At the moment, the Peninsula's probably got a, got underway quicker than others, so they're the, the bulk of the, the grain in the bin at the moment. Um, but we've got the York Peninsula as well um, is not too far behind in the mid-north, so they're catching up. But I think areas such as the, the Air Peninsula and the Malia, they're two specific areas that are, are having really big crops um, and they're contributing strongly to this um, estimated record number that uh, is in the Crop and Pasture Report. Grain Producers SH, Brad Perry there. Now, as we were talking about, the Air Peninsula is one of the big driver of tonnages this year. It's expected the EP itself will contribute almost 2.9 million tonnes of wheat alone to the expected 6.9 million tonnes estimated to be repped from South Australia this year. GPSA Director and Cougar Farmer Peter Wilmot joins me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cathy. How are things looking at your place? Absolutely fantastic. We're... Pretty much just about halfway through harvest. Um, it's been quite late, but um, certainly record yields for us. When you say record yields, what sort of tonnages are you pulling off? Uh, we're pulling off between three and six tonne on wheat, um, which is just outstanding for our area. What does it mean to the Kimber region to have such a turnaround in crops? Oh, it's fantastic. Some certain areas around Kimber, um, particularly north of Kimber and through to the Cal area, have been doing it very tough for a number of years. They've had about five really ordinary years in a row and this is a boomer for them. So um, it's come at a very good time. How much difference has that rain in January or early in the year that was a bit destructive in a lot of areas, but what has that now meant at the end of the year? Uh, Huge turnaround. Um, Just having a full subsoil moisture profile to seed into makes an enormous difference to your crop. 
we had reasonably dry sort of um, period in July there. But other than that, we've had some follow-up rain, so it's been fantastic. The rain certainly was destructive um, out here, and we all um, are quite tired at the end of this year, I think, <laughs> um, after doing all those repair works and, and straightening to seeding and, and straightening to looking after a good crop. So, But it's, um, it's certainly paid off. I'm sure it's good to be on the header and starting to actually get in the bin. And until it's all locked away, it's there's still a bit of nervousness, isn't there? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, I think there's another rain forecast out the second week or so of December. We're all really trying to get what we can in before then. Have you ever pulled off crops this large, up to, to six tonnes a hectare? Uh, no. No, that's certainly a record tonnage for us in terms of wheat. But um, got close, but not that that much. And it's much more consistent. Um, so, you know, there's, there's good consistency throughout the whole district. There are lots of areas on the Air Peninsula that can pull off a good crop, but are there any areas that are really showing up as having a, a huge turnaround? Oh, absolutely further west. Um, they're having a cracker. They tend to have a little bit of a boom and bust cycle out there, but they're pulling off four tonne plus crops and um, out to Juna, Penong, those sort of areas, um, Putra. So, um, those sort of really quite marginal rainfall areas, really. Yes, they're fairly marginal areas, um, but they're, they're really, really having a good one this year. Oh, it's good to hear, isn't it, after what has been a very difficult run for a lot of farmers in South Australia for a couple of years. Yes, it is. What sort of proteins, though, are you getting? Because there's going to be a bit of a premium for high-protein wheat given how much rain's been on the East Coast. Yeah, there's a little bit of a premium showing there in the market at the moment. Um, we are mostly pulling off ASW and APW in this area, um, which is quite good. I haven't heard of too much hard wheat at this stage. That's mostly due to um, nitrogen levels, I guess, in the paddocks. All that washout in January certainly didn't help with anything that we built up before then. I know there are parts of the Air Peninsula that can pull off some pretty massive crops, and this is going to be the year to do it. Have you heard of some hefty tonnages? Uh, the biggest I've heard of is eight tonnes. Eight tonnes, wow. In an area that would normally get that? No, no, not all. That's in the, the Coongal Warrenboo type area. So um, that's certainly a record for everybody. Well, when I say normally get that, normally get high yields, no one normally gets eight tonnes to the hectare. That's amazing. Um, I guess it makes what's been a, a pretty tough year because you've had to spend a lot to get this crop off as well. Yeah, the inputs have been very, very high and um, quite challenging to to meet those costs um, during a year where we've had some poor ones beforehand, but um, uh, we've had good support from financiers. Looking back at probably the last really big bumper crop of 2016, how does it compare? Uh, yeah, it's much more for us, yeah. So it's probably an, another 20% on top. Really? Gosh, this one really is going to be one for the record books, isn't it? In 50 years' time, there'll probably be people talking about the 2022 harvest. Yes, hopefully. We're actually looking forward to um, a good year next year too, I hope. Um, we've still got quite a full subsoil moisture there, and if we can save that through the summer, we'll, we'll be going in strong next year as well. Fair enough. Well, well, that is good news as well, that, that it's not just this year that's been set up well, but hopefully next year as well. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks very much.
GPSA director and cougar farmer Peter Wilmot there from the Air Peninsula. The Air Peninsula is certainly driving uh, a lot of tonnages this year. It's good to hear after oh, they have gone through a pretty dry period over the last few years. Another area that knows just how dry this state can get is the, the Mallee Clark Shoba uh, who farms at Wilpuck. Wilpilka between Maruk and Wakar explains to Eliza Berlage that this year is the best year he has seen. Uh, things are looking good. Actual harvest itself is a very slow start. We've only just started on a couple of paddocks of barley, which is touch and go for moisture still, and we're reaping peas at the moment, which will be done in a day's time. A few areas across the, the Mallee and the Riverland got quite a lot more rainfall than they normally do. What's the result been for all your crops? How have they been looking? Yeah, they're looking quite good. We're above average yield, well and truly. Did get a little bit of yield defect in July and August when we were quite dry. But besides that, the wet spring really picked it all up and we're looking quite good. I have heard some reports that the wetter spring has meant some issues with moisture and some farmers are having to start quite a bit later in the day just to to wait for that to dry out. Has that been an issue for you? Yes, it has. We're already the 1st of December now. Normally we would be well over halfway through our program, but we've hardly even started. Yeah, and it caused a few issues with diseases, but nothing that we couldn't get on top of. So we'll deal with the rain any day over the dry. Yeah, as you said, heard about some disease pressures that that wet, wetter weather has brought, but you said you've been able to mostly manage them. Yeah, what sort of disease pressures have you had? Uh, we had mildew earlier on in our week, and also have had rust go through, which we had to spray for. And uh, yeah, just to paint a picture, how are things looking this year compared to previous years for you guys? Things are looking very good, especially compared to last year. Last year we nearly had no harvest. Yeah, I'm reasonably young. It's probably the best harvest I've seen. So how, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I am 30. I guess, yeah, just being a, a younger farmer, but, you know, obviously you've got plenty of experience around you. What have you heard from other people about how this compares to some of the other years? A lot of people compare it to 2010. We're probably a little bit off of that because we did miss out in July, August, but other side of Loxton is looks fantastic. Probably the best year I've ever had. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, and any particular standout crops this year that you're really impressed with? Probably the wheat. The wheat has picked up the most, especially that sort of handled the July-August dryness a bit easier because it was a bit um, less advanced compared to the barley. So it should be quite nice to reap once we get into it. Wapilka grain grower Clark Schober speaking with Eliza Berlage there. And speaking of the Persa Crop and Pasture Report, Primary Industries and Regions Minister Claire Scriven says all these great numbers that are coming in, it's great news not just for the individual farmers but for the South Australian economy as well. Well, I think uh, there really are very significant numbers. This is a, a record crop. A crop at 12.1 million tonnes above the previous record of 11.1 million tonnes, which was in 2016-17. So that is, is really significant and a very good outcome uh, for our producers. Uh, now, there will be some downgrade of grain quality because of some of the weather damage, but, of course, there's very, very high global grain prices at the moment, uh, which means that the harvest is also likely to have a record high farm gate value. So I think that's really an incredible result. Um, The current estimate of $4.4 billion is going to be over a billion dollars more than the previous record of $3.3 billion. So really it's fantastic news for our farmers as well as for the South Australian economy overall. I was going to get to that. What does this mean to regional South Australia? Because agriculture really is one of the pillars of the economy. 
It is absolutely one of the pillars. I would say one of the biggest pillars. Uh, it is incredibly important for our state's economy as well as for our regional areas. Uh, and it's really important, I think, on a number of levels. One is the extra revenue that it will bring in because, of course, there's been uh, you know, a lot of challenges. There always are a lot of challenges in agriculture, uh, but having that uh, that improvement will be a bonus. And that, of course, then flows on to our regional communities because there's more money to be spent in our regional businesses uh, and that has that full flow-on effect to in so many aspects of, of the community, you know, the local businesses, even the local sporting clubs and things like that. So it really is fantastic news. Farming Industries and Regions Minister Claire Scriven speaking there. If you'd like to share with me some of the challenges you're pulling off, you can text me on 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 991 and join me in celebrating what is looking like a record crop harvest for South Australia in 2223. It's 21 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next, but in the meantime, if you've got sheep, uh, I just say you're keeping a pretty close eye on them because sheep producers are being advised that foot rot cases are on the rise after an exceptionally wet spring. Chris Van Dizel, managing a manager of field operations for Persa, says this year it will spread for longer than it usually would. We're experiencing um, quite a busy year for foot rot in the state this year, predominantly because of the, the wetter conditions. Foot rot's a disease that, that likes it both wet and warm uh, and tends not to spread if it's cold and dry or really hot and dry. So with the you know the wetter conditions across a large part of the sheep producing areas, we are seeing an increase in, in detections of, of foot rot and not just in the areas where we traditionally find it, I suppose, but, but up into some of the drier areas where often it is you know, too dry to often detect rot in sheep in those areas. So what sort of case figures do we have at the moment on, on foot rot in South Australia? Uh, we've got another 20 confirmed cases so far this spread period and, and we call the spread period sort of from the start of spring. That brings our, our total known infections across the state around that 150 mark with obviously some, some other suspect cases that, that we're still investigating. And to gain some perspective of that figure, um, is that a reasonably high amount of cases for this time of year or is it quite typical? Um, look, it's higher than normal, but pleasingly it, it's not as high as I thought it could have been with, with how wet it's been. Having said that, I also believe that the season's a bit behind where it normally would be in terms of, of temperature and warmth. So where we'd probably normally stop detecting foot rot by the end of December, early January, I do think we're going to keep detecting it right through summer this year because of the conditions. So comparatively, this time last year, what were the case numbers? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think it would probably be around 10 to a dozen, I'd say, just off the top of my head this time last year. Uh, and last year was a reasonably favourable year as well, not as wet as 2022. Um, but when you go back, you know, 2018-19, when it was dry, those detections, you know, are right down. So are the ongoing wet conditions the main cause or have other factors been identified? I think they are the main cause because foot rot just won't develop if it's if it's not wet and warm. So it may well be on a property and it may well have been imported onto a property through purchases, but it doesn't spread and people don't notice lameness and so they don't report it. So we find in these years where it's wetter, people are noticing lameness, they're getting onto their vets or, or onto Persa and reporting it, so we, we detect more of it purely because the, the sheep producers are detecting more of it. In a flock where you've got a pretty high stocking rate, favourable conditions, reasonable pasture length, 
you can go from you know a handful of infected sheep to the whole mob of you know of 500 uh, with 90 percent infection probably within two or three weeks so it, it can spread rapidly when conditions are favorable having said that uh, when it dries up it often won't spread at all and, until conditions become favorable and i think that that's probably a key message is that this year it is going to spread throughout a flock for longer than it normally would Chris Van Dizel, the Manager of Field Operations for PERSA, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. There, so while we've been focusing on this uh, uh, rainfall and what it's meant for the grain crops, the uh, sheep producers, livestock producers have to keep a close eye on their livestock. We've heard about the fly strike in the far west of New South Wales and foot rot here in South Australia as well. So summer could present quite a few challenges for the uh, livestock producers as well, but I'm sure a lot of people aren't knocking the rain either. I have been pushing for your grain totals though, what you're reaping. Text me 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one if you'd like to share. We're across to the Bureau of Meteorology now though, where Senior Forecaster Vince Rollins has the latest. Good afternoon. Hello Cassie. Things are certainly starting to warm up. They are finally, so it's good to see some warm weather and some uh, yeah, dry conditions for, for at least the next uh, probably four or five days. But yeah, certainly things heating up and it's just due to the wind swinging around to uh, the north over the next couple of days. So we've got a high pressure system at the moment sitting south of Kangaroo Island that is going to continue to move eastwards over the next couple of days, uh, getting into the Tasman. And yeah, as I mentioned, then those winds will swing around to uh, the northeasterly starting um, in the west later today and then just extending across the rest of the state during tomorrow and Saturday. So certainly bringing some uh, hotter conditions with it. So we will see temperatures uh, continuing to rise through tomorrow and then over the weekend. But uh, we do have a little bit of a weak trough that just moves into uh, the far west sort of late Saturday and then during Sunday morning just pushes over parts of the, the western districts and the south of the state. So the winds will swing back round to uh, a southerly behind that trough and we'll get some cooler conditions behind it. And then as we head into Monday, that trough just starts to push a little bit further northwards. So those uh, cooler conditions will slowly extend northwards over that uh, sort of Monday, Tuesday period uh, while we've still got some northerlies in the far north. But then when we get to Wednesday, Thursday, we've got uh, southeasterly winds right across the state, so we're uh, yeah, looking at uh, cooler conditions continuing. But uh, we do see the effects of another trough that's starting to move uh, into the western parts of the state about mid-next week, so uh, not a lot happening as far as rainfall over the next few days, but uh, we could see some activity coming across with that uh, next trough around mid-next week. But maybe a, a bit of a risk of some coastal showers around on Monday as the winds swing southerly, but not expecting those showers to push too far northward. So it's really that Wednesday-Thursday period we're more likely to see a little bit of shower activity over the western parts of the state. Extending eastwards on Thursday, maybe reaching the, the central districts, but yeah, nothing um, really significant as far as rainfall uh, goes with those showers and there is a slight uh, risk of some thunderstorms as that system moves through on, in the far northwest of the state but um, yeah so pretty much uh, dry and uh, becoming hot over the next few days we will see some elevated fire dangers particularly about the eastern air peninsula over the coming days just as those uh, winds just do pick up a little bit but it 
with that rise in temperatures. So just be, uh, just keep an eye on the Bureau's webpage for any uh, warnings that we do put out with those fire dangers. And there is a, a little bit of a risk of some dry thunderstorms over uh, the eastern parts of the northeast pastoral district over the next, or during Friday and Saturday as well. So the main focus is the uh, the hot conditions coming through. Looking like we'll get some very hot conditions in the west as well with temperatures getting into uh, the low 40s and we do have uh, some heat wave conditions um, starting to develop as we head towards the weekend through that western part as well. So yeah, certainly it's been a while since we've, uh, for some areas of, since we've seen uh, some pretty high temperatures. So uh, as usual, just uh, yeah, make sure you, you uh, keep hydrated and uh, yeah, make the most of uh, these, uh, these hot conditions um, over the next few days. Cassie. Been a long time coming. Thanks so much mm. for that, Vince. No. Vince Rollins from the Bureau of Meteorology there. In the far west of New South Wales, it's going to be a mostly sunny day tomorrow in the upper western, but there could be a thunderstorm around, but not really any rain associated with it. So do watch out for that. That's happening in the late afternoon and evening. Wind could pick up to uh, 15 to 25 kilometres an hour in the morning as well. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 15 and 19 degrees, but the daytime temperatures getting quite warm, 29 to 34 degrees. The lower western will be sunny. There's a chance of a thunderstorm with little to no rainfall as well. Overnight down to 13 to 17 degrees, but the daytime temperatures reaching the low 30s. Now, you can stay with the country out on the digital stream. Otherwise, Australia are two for 295 as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. I'm so glad you could join me today. Now, you might have heard about the 27 golden bandicoots that were released in Sturt National Park in far west New South Wales earlier this year. Well, soon you're going to hear how they're going after all this rain and what that has meant for not just vegetation, but animals as well. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges in that, especially in this boom-bust environment and at the moment we're going through this big boom. As everyone knows, we've had fantastic rainfall over the last 12 months and even the, the couple of years before that. So cats are doing really well at the moment, like everything else, and breeding. So yeah, the boom-bust cycle of the desert creates quite a challenge in trying to keep the lid on cat numbers outside our feral-free areas. More on that soon. And we've been talking a lot about using seaweed as feed additive in, in livestock for many, many years. So why isn't it being used widely? Well, I'll have more answering that question soon. But first, here's Matt Coleman with the news headlines. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the River Murray flood peak is now expected to hit the state later than expected. New modelling estimates it will hit Renmark on December the 14th, Wakery on the 23rd, and will get to Manham by December the 27th. The peak is still expected to be between 175 and 180 gigalitres of water a day. Prosecutors have dropped a criminal neglect charge against an Adelaide mother whose two-year-old son was badly burnt. At a hearing in the Adelaide Magistrates Court this morning, prosecutors dropped a criminal neglect charge against a 34-year-old Emma Jade Short and she was granted permission to have supervised visits with her toddler. The prosecutors have now laid an additional charge against her partner who's accused of criminal neglect of the child and aggravated causing harm with intent. And South Australia will be turning it on for soccer fans on Sunday morning when the soccer 
Socceroos face off against Argentina in the World Cup. Licensed venues which are showing the match that's being played in Qatar will be allowed to serve patrons. The Premier Peter Malinowskis says fans wanting to emulate Melbourne's Federation Square mass gathering can also head to the Adelaide Oval. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman, there with the news headlines. Now, back in June, you might remember, 27 golden bandicoots were released in Sturt National Park. Now, that's near Tibbaburra in the far west of New South Wales. This was all part of the Wild Deserts Project, which rehouses locally extinct animals. Well, six months on, there's some good news, with many of the native marsupials released already breeding. ABC Broken Hill reporter Bill Ormond spoke to Project Coordinator Reese Pedler, who says... Staff at Wild Deserts have been very busy lately. We've been undertaking some trapping in the Wild Deserts exclosures, looking at our reintroduced species, particularly golden bandicoots and bilbies and crest-tailed mulgaras, looking at their numbers and their breeding and getting a check on how they're doing. Right, and uh, how are they doing? Really well. As you may remember, we released the golden bandicoots only about six months ago after we translocated them over from Western Australia and yeah we caught a, a couple dozen uh, during our trapping and the really exciting thing is that there's lots of evidence of breeding. Over half the individuals we caught were new uh, unmarked bandicoots so they were, they've been born at wild deserts and really exciting is that some of the young ones including a young female born at wild deserts already has pouch young in her pouch so pretty incredibly rapid reproduction grandkids of some of the founders already within six months all right how does that compare to the expectations when you release them i think it's almost six months to the day pretty much back end of may it is yeah so uh, we're really excited and i mean i guess we knew that they were rapid breeders but we've had such fantastic seasonal conditions it's really thrilling to see it all going so well for those who might not know just how quickly i mean obviously very quickly from what you've said but just how quickly can they breed these golden bandicoots amongst some of the other animals you've got there well like a lot of marsupials they just keep on breeding while the conditions are good so they have a incredibly short gestation of days or, or weeks and then of course most of their development is in the pouch like a joey kangaroo and then they are ejected from the pouch at a fairly young age and and obviously are maturing really rapidly to then uh, reproduce themselves. But yeah, our trapping results from just last week demonstrate that we have absolutely flourishing populations of bilbies and and golden bandicoots in there and everything's going really well. Wonderful. That's good to hear. And in terms of the project moving forward, can you give any sort of an update there on what's going to happen over the next sort of 6 to 12 months? So we have a couple more species on our list for reintroduction with the New South Wales government funders and so we're trying to work through some of the approvals processes for a couple of those over the next sort of 24 months and we're not quite sure which species we'll be able to reintroduce next year just yet while we go through all those translocation planning processes. But thickness rats and potentially even burrowing betongs are the species that we're looking at. The other exciting thing is that we're working further on our wild training zone area, which is the big 10,000 hectare area outside of our exclosures, but semi-bounded by the dog fence. We're working on getting cat populations in there down to a level where we can start trialling releases of bilbies from inside our our feral-free exclosures into an environment where they can be exposed to, to low levels of feral cats so that they can learn what they are and you know ultimately our goal is to see these animals beyond these fenced exclosures and living in the wider environment where feral predators are controlled or in you know controlled densities.
It's great to hear, and I suppose, how far off are you with that? Not not too far then, I imagine. Is it just in terms of building up the population within the controlled area and then releasing them into that larger exclosure? Yeah, so we have two, well, a number of things to work on, I guess. Yeah, part of it is building up sufficient numbers of, of bilbies inside our exclosures. But the other thing is getting cat numbers down to these suppressed densities and, and being able to keep them at those levels. And, of course... Yeah, there's a lot of challenges in that, especially in this boom-bust environment. And at the moment, we're going through this big boom. As everyone knows, we've had fantastic rainfall over the last 12 months and even the, the couple of years before that. So cats are doing really well at the moment, like everything else, and breeding. So, yeah, the boom-bust cycle of the desert creates quite a challenge in trying to keep the lid on cat numbers outside our feral-free areas. Reese Pedler, Project Coordinator for the Wild Deserts Project west of Tuberborough, speaking with reporter Bill Ormond. There's some good news. Uh, this rain certainly has uh, brought a lot of good, but also a lot of challenges as well to uh, what uh, is happening out there, not just on farms, but also in the conservation areas as well. Now, one thing that we talk about quite a lot on this program, and a lot of research has been done as well on, is to figure out how algae can be used in livestock feed as a way to reduce methane and as a sustainable source of protein as well. Now, work's been going on for a decade, if not longer. So why isn't it really being used yet? There's sort of some projects in South Australia starting to get into it, but Senior Research Officer for Central Queensland University, Diogo Costa, says it's just too expensive. But as he tells Megan Hughes, there could be ways to make it more viable. It's something that's more applied to intensive systems where you can, for example, in a feedlot or in a dairy, you can be putting the macroalgae into every mouthful of the animal. In my review, we sort of look, in our review, we looked at single cell species as well as potential sources of protein to be used in extensive systems. So grazing animals, particularly in northern Australia, animals that are grazing pastures with low crude protein content and could benefit from receiving a true protein source coming from an algae produced on site. And the idea of producing it on farm is that you would reduce, obviously, cost with freight of the feedstuff to the farm and also reduce issues around shelf life of the product, right? Because as it is produced, it can be delivered. Obviously, there's a, a, still a lot of work needed to devise those systems to have the algae being produced on, on site. There, there is some work done. Our feeling is that there, there is still lacking information to, on, on how to devise those systems and make them affordable to producers. So as you said, it's been 10 years since you did your own PhD on using algae as feed in livestock, and it's still really not viable, as you said. It's still the cost of production outweighs, I guess, any benefits that you would get. What do you think needs to be done? Specifically on extensive grazing systems, so I think there is still uh, lacking information. As I said, this new interest in, in methane reduction, so carbon abatement, has created opportunities for the macroalgae species, Asparagopsis, and there has been work done, and, and, and I guess now they're in that phase of 
making it attractive to producers. And it will either be by lowering the cost as they scale production or also creating other ways for the producer right, to, to be attracted to use that. Like, for example, getting into uh, carbon trading. So a producer that is using that algae species is then offsetting carbon and can sell to in the market or perhaps market his or her own beef as a carbon neutral beef. That is one area, So, which is a lot has been done now for intensive systems. Coming back to extensive systems, to grazing animals, then I'm talking about protein sources, right? And the answer is no, we don't have an answer at the moment. In this review, I sort of look at the opportunities to link to other ways. So I put a, a hypothetical production system there that you could, for example, link to uh, mine site rehabilitation. So using the wastewater from the mine industry, so you have that industry subsidizing the production of algae because they, they can work as biofilters, uh, so they assimilate the CO2 from the atmosphere and also are able to uptake nutrients from the water, cleaning the water, so you have the benefits there. All water is something rare, right, in the semi-arid regions of, of northern Australia, so it's definitely a win-win for everyone involved there. But it's just like a light at the end of the tunnel at this stage. Grain prices are so expensive at the moment and depending on where you're grazing cattle, you may not be getting enough rain. Do you think that like, there'll be environmental factors as well that might help make this more viable as grazers and producers may not have much choice of where to get their feed? Yes, you're spot on. There are other ways of getting, for example, the nitrogen, a known protein source of nitrogen in extensive systems, like, uh, for example, using urea, a synthetic form of nitrogen, right, either delivered by water, which is, I I even have a project on the subject as we speak, or, or in the form of dry leak, but a true protein source like algae would be or other grains or like cotton seed meal or it becomes cost prohibitive and unless there's that appeal on solutions for the environment that you can add benefits to it like for example saying oh i'm producing this algae which is assimilating co2 so i'm helping with the whole global warming thing and then potentially you can create a market for the or beef or lamb or whatever red meat you're producing from ruminant animals in, in the extensive systems, right? But unless that happens, the issue is the cost. It's still expensive as is. Having worked in this field for a while now, and also, as you said um, to me earlier, being the son of a cattle producer, where... Do you think that this will be in 10 years? Do you think we'll still be having the same conversation that it's just too expensive, even though it may provide all these benefits? Or do you think it'll actually have gotten to the point where it can be used viably as feed? I'm not a good psychic, but I think, <laughs> I think like the pressure in the environment is only increasing, right? Like to be environmental friendly. 
as we spoke earlier, like asparagopsis, the macroalgae in intensive system is becoming a reality because of all that aspect on methane reduction. At the moment, it's not something that is applied to extensive systems. I still feel that in extensive systems, single-cell proteins, so other algae species that are protein sources, could become a good option there for production systems, and I think it will be a mixture of things, right? You're asking me now, what do I think in 10 years? I think it might be real in 10 years, because looking back 10 years, I didn't even know that there would be a red seaweed having effect on methane and so studded as it is. So I I think now we will start focusing more and more because we are desperate to find solutions to all production systems so they become more sustainable. Senior Research Officer for Central Queensland University, Diogo Costa, speaking with Megan Hughes. And we'll have a bit more on sustainability up next. It is coming up to a quarter to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, Coles is expanding its carbon-neutral beef range with customers in New South Wales, uh, South Australia and Tasmania now able to purchase the product. The new products were launched in Sydney this week and David Clawton spoke to Coles and one of their suppliers, Daniel Mathy, a cattle producer from Holbrook in New South Wales. He's asked him what he's changed on the farm to make his beef more carbon-neutral. We've planted a lot of trees. Uh, so these, these have the dual advantage of offsetting emissions as well as providing shade for the herd and preventing erosion. Uh, we've implemented best practice soil and pasture management to increase the amount of carbon we're storing in the soil. So soil testing paddocks, applying the appropriate uh, nutrients that are required for those paddocks. Uh, pasture management is targeted rotational grazing, uh, leaving the correct residual ground cover, putting more area into perennial pastures. So there's more green feed, more time of the year. Going going an extra effort to get the best cattle genetics available to increase herd productivity. Uh, we've installed multiple solar panels for farm electricity use, including pumping water to our cattle. How many panels uh, have you got now? We've got about 50 kilowatts of panels. So how has Coles been helping you out in that regard? I mean, obviously they're paying you for your beef. Do they give you a premium or do they support you in other ways? That's right. Uh, Coles is, is paying a premium and they are doing an excellent job of providing us with the resources uh, to people to talk to, to able to minimise our carbon emissions. And when you say you've been doing rotational grazing, so you're obviously resting quite a bit of the land when you're doing that, and you're you're putting nutrients on to promote the growth, so the more that your pasture grows, the more carbon the grass can store in the soil, yeah? so That's right. So what are you seeing in terms of your carbon levels? They have been increasing steadily uh, over the years, but it is a very, it's a long-term gain uh, with the soil carbon. I think some more short-term things where we're seeing immediate results from uh, herd productivity. So we're putting a very strong emphasis on turning our cattle off at a younger age uh, and higher weights when possible. So how does that help in terms of your carbon footprint? So the carbon footprint is measured on the basis of kilograms of live weight sold. So if each, as a breeding producer, uh, we have to run a cow and if we, that cow isn't getting in calf, it's gone. And for every cow we run, their progeny, we want to put on the maximum amount of of weight gain as fast as possible uh, to justify having that cow 
and to reduce that cow's emissions and the offspring's emission per kilogram of light weight gained. So I suppose in some respects, the faster they grow, the quicker they get to an age that they can be that can they can be processed, and that has less, less impact on the environment. Is that fair to say? Yes, definitely. And what about your carbon credits? Because that's the thing that you could sell. Have you sold those to Coles? No, we're still in the industry, uh, early stages of that process. We're investigating all our options. So no, not at this stage. Because a lot, uh, of, Coles, lot of farmers are getting advice not to sell because obviously that might shut you out of other markets, particularly in the EU. Yeah, so we, we are treading carefully in that regard. We are uh, engaging with yeah, private consultants to make sure that we make the right decisions. Um, but Coles is definitely excited to be buying carbon credits from us directly Uh, but we just want to make sure that we're making the right decision. Also at the launch today in Sydney is Dr Stephen Wiedemann, who's the Managing Director of Integrity Ag and Environment. That's a big title, Uh, Stephen. Can you explain what that means with Coles? Uh, Look, I oversee and manage this project and program for Coles and have been doing so since the beginning a couple of years ago, so it's been a long journey, but uh, we've, we've got there now and we're in the rollout phase, which is really exciting to see. One of the key things around this is is consumer confidence in that message that this is a more sustainable product. How does Coles measure that? Yeah, look, as as science partner, that's part of our role. We do that certification work. We certify effectively the emissions and any carbon removals on every farm that's in the program and uh, right through the supply chain as well, so through processing as well. And then it's not just it's not just us and our word for it either. Our work is then third party verified. And finally, it's approved by Climate Active, who are the, the sort of certifying body and they're part of the federal government. And what are you finding when you, when you look across all of the producers like Daniel Matthew in New South Wales and Holbrook? We did ask him how much carbon he's storing. We didn't get a number of that. What are you seeing across the board? Yeah, look, the tricky thing is it takes a long time to certify a farm to be carbon neutral in a way that we can put it on a shelf on a brand. So that's realistically a five-year journey. So we're confident, you know, we're we're delivering that um, that carbon neutral beef, and the the farms are. I know it probably sounds a little bit ambiguous, but part of our challenge is uh, take an issue like soil carbon. You're three to five years to certify how much soil carbon you're building. So. It, it's in process. It's, it, it takes takes time to get that certification bit done. I suppose the other question really is about carbon credits. Like Coles has has a, a desire to be carbon neutral too in the future, but but Daniel's saying oh, I want to weigh up my options in terms of selling you carbon credits. Uh, yeah, look, carbon credits are a part of the picture. They're, they're a useful sort of tool, uh, and uh, for my part, I think it is best that the credits off a farm go with the product off that farm and, uh, uh, you know, really transfer them through the market that way. Meaning that they would go to Coles? Oh, look, in this instance, uh, look, I think Coles is, is, is taking a leading role in this area, but I'm sure it won't be the last. In industry and MLA here have the target of 50% of beef going through low carbon and carbon neutral supply chains in, in the next decade. So this is really the, you know, the leading edge of it um, and we'll see a lot more to come. That was Dr. Stephen Wiedemann from Coles speaking with David Clawton there about... uh 
carbon neutral beef and uh, the drivers that are creating demand for that. Now, finally today, we've been talking a bit about how much the rainfall has meant to South Australia with this record crop on the cards for, for winter crop for, for the uh, grains and pulses and oil seeds that Australia, South Australia normally produces at this time of year. It's looking like a massive 12 million tonne crop, sorry, 8 million tonne crop, um, but it's, um, uh, sorry, 12 million tonne crop, but an area of the country that you'd normally associate with all this rain seems to have been a bit left behind by this third La Nina season that's brought widespread rain and flooding across parts of Australia. It's amazing that the north seems to have missed out in some areas. Lucy Cooper filed this report. Travelling along the Flinders Highway between Townsville and Mount Isa, you notice the road is very straight, flat and long. But also, the landscape changes suddenly, from drought-ridden paddocks to flourishing pastures. It all comes down to the hit-and-miss nature of rainfall in the northwest, which senior meteorologist with the Bureau of Meteorology, Steve Hadley, says is just part and parcel of the region. A lot of northern Australia has quite a a variable rainfall pattern through the year. So um, you get, you know, some wetter years and some drier years and in, you know, across the um, the tropical north of Australia, you know, so it is often a patchwork of, of rainfall where you get these uh, smaller rainfall cells um, which happen in some areas and miss other areas. And then you'll get the um, odd, bigger, larger system that will sweep through and produce uh, a heavier sort of look to the rainfall um, through uh, a broader swath of the north, uh, but maybe missing entirely other places. So that's the kind of um, nature of the rainfall that we deal with in northern Australia most years. The shires of Flinders and Cloncurry are not drought declared, whilst nestled in between them, the McKinley and Richmond shires are. 40.9% of Queensland remains drought declared, and graziers in the northwest of the state are still waiting on rain. Thea Harrington of Werriner Station, north of Julia Creek, says in the 10 years she has lived in the northwest, she has yet to see a normal season. Everybody talks about a normal year, um, and in the 10 years that I've been here, no one's described it as normal. Um, we've had everything from super dry years like 2013 and then the total opposite extreme in 2019. Um, and... I don't know what normal is in the 10 years that I've been in the northwest. Ruth Chaplin lives 30 kilometres outside of Cloncurry on Weinberg Station, a family-owned and operated cattle property. She says until this past week, it was shaping up to be a very dry 2022. Up until 48 hours ago, we had really had anything. I mean, we were really starting to look down um, the barrel of a very dry 2022. And we were starting to have a little bit of a sick feeling I suppose. Um, we did get about 39 mil the other day and it was very welcome and we've kind of taken a breath but it's been very patchy at the same time like even across our place we not all of it has been wet at all. Thea says it's just part of living in the region. We have two gauges um, one here at, one at our house and one 5k down the road at the bottom of our driveway and they can have two vastly different falls. Um, we are in a little pocket um, between the Flinders Highway and the Wills Developmental Road um, that I would describe that has missed out in the last couple of years. Um, there are not a lot of cattle running in those paddocks at the moment. Um, it's probably too early to comment on what this season's going to be like, um, but I think it's going to take some very consistent 
moisture to rebuild the soil moisture and bring back the pasture. And Ruth Chaplin agrees. It's very hit and miss. Like Some people have had decent rain, but a large majority haven't. And the rain that they've had has been storms. So, you know, it varies across places, across areas, across districts, yeah. Steve Hadley from the Bureau says it's not just the weather that impacts drought, but also the landscapes. There's a lot of things that influence uh, drought in the landscape. And one of those things, you know, is the landscape and, uh, you know, the way it reacts and takes the rainfall. Um, and so the, the weather factors involved are, you know, potentially the, the small scale nature of some of the, uh, the thunderstorm systems that come through um, North Queensland. And, uh, you know, they can affect one uh, part of the region, but not another. And in some, you know, respects, some of the smaller scale systems that you get, um, you know, they can affect, you know, um, you know, even smaller parts of the district um, rather than, you know, affecting a whole swath of uh, the uh, the north of the state. Ruth Chaplin says she just wishes some of the rain would come her way. It'd be nice to take some of the the wet off the people down south, but unfortunately we, we just can't do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I guess, we're kind of used to it. Like, it's not one of those things that you, you can plan for to some extent anyway, but it's, it's quite stressful when you have no control. As for the future... Well, for many on the land, it comes down to hope and luck. I personally like to stay positive and I think maybe we, we will see a bit more rain, um, but you really can't hold on to that either. You've sort of got to plan for both options and at the moment um, it could go either way. So it's certainly not we're, not, we're certainly not expecting it to be a very big wet, but at the same time let's, we're just hoping for something um, average. Yeah, and it compares well to the... I mean, we've been in drought for since 2012-13. So, yeah, let's hope it's better than those years. Ruth Chapman, who lives at Weinberg Station, a family-owned and operated cattle property outside of Cloncurry, finishing that report by Lucy Cooper. It's amazing, isn't it, to think of all that rain that's been falling and the top end where you normally think of there being lots of rain over summer and not getting nearly as much. At, uh, as they said, uh, it's just the area that La Nina has forgotten. So that's all we have time for on the program today. But day two of the men's first test, Australia versus West Indies, will be uh, underway soon on your radio. But you can keep listening to Caroline Winter after one o'clock on your digital radio or on the radio, uh, the ABC Listen app, and she can tell us now what's coming up. Good afternoon. Hi, Cass. Well, we're going to continue this conversation around the Socceroos. Are you a soccer oh, fan? Did you watch the game? I did. Well, my, I told my husband that I don't want to be up for the whole game, so he won't me up at halftime. Oh, excellent. So I saw the good bit. Yeah, that's right. You just need to time it properly. Well, loads of people want to be able to crowd together, you know, with other fans to watch the game, which is happening on Sunday morning. There's now been an announcement that they will have somewhere to do that. But we're going to take a look at what that'll mean. You know, there's a lot of people pouring into the city for a warm night. There's the Adelaide 500 concert. So we're going to take a look at security around it. around the place. Absolutely. So what does that actually mean over the weekend? And with the first day of summer, we're going to take a look as well at uh, beach, water and uh, river safety. Absolutely. Very important. So I was just talking to someone about how important swimming lessons are for kids as yeah. well. So uh, lots of good stuff coming up on your radio this afternoon on ABC, uh, on the Listen app and uh, where you get your, your digital offering from. So keep listening. Jules and Lee Radford will be on this afternoon as well. But that's it from me. It's coming up to one o'clock. Time for news.
Afternoons with Caroline Winter. Matt Gilbertson. Hi. Oh, Sonia. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, my life is pretty much a musical. Caroline Winter. ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.